Please stand as you are able for today's reading of the gospel lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. This from the New International Version. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When Jesus saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. This one was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark, for reading our lesson in grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. It is so, so good to be in worship with you on this beautiful day. And also a word of greetings and thanksgiving to our online audience who uh, joins us uh, online today. It means a great deal that you've chosen to be a part of us. And we uh, want you to know how meaningful our presence is to be with you together. Uh, and Bishop Pennell, to be with you, I said to Bishop as he was walking down after the baptism, it's a pleasure doing business with you, Joe. <laughs> it's great to have that kind of support. Uh, and to Eric and Elizabeth and this beautiful, beautiful Annie, we're so grateful for what she means to her family and for what you all mean to her. Thank you, Beth, for beautiful music. Uh, thank you, Ryan, Greg, Paul, too many to name, and our orchestra. We're so grateful for leading us. Uh, you're leading us in praise. just want to give you a quick commercial that two weeks from today, uh, out in the narthex, we'll begin our Advent concerts. Our youth will be sharing their music. You have three opportunities to hear this outstanding youth choir. And if you've never participated in that, uh, you need to do it this year. It will make Advent for you as we join our youth choir in the narthex for three opportunities two weeks from today on Sunday afternoon. To the text. The text this morning from Luke begins with a recurring phrase that you see repeated in Luke's gospel where Luke says, now Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. You see that phrase repeated again and again because Dr. Luke sees the life of Jesus through the lens of Good Friday. Jesus knows what's coming. And so the way Luke presents the gospel is Jesus' entire ministry is actually a prelude to what happens on Good Friday at the cross. The first time you see this phrase is in chapter 9, verse 51, fairly early in Luke's narrative, where the text says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is on the cross, Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And so apparently as early as chapter 9, Jesus seems to know where this trail is headed 
and he refuses to turn back. The second part of the text, on his way to Jerusalem, Luke says to us that Jesus traveled along the border between Galilee and Samaria. And those of you who know something about biblical geography, if you're going from Galilee to Samaria, uh, that's Galilee in the north where the majority of Jesus' ministry was spent, and to Jerusalem in the south. And if you look closely, Samaria is smack dab in between. And so to get to Jerusalem from Galilee, you don't really trail the border. You don't skim the border. You just cross the border. Or if you were a first century Jew from Galilee, sometimes in order to avoid setting foot on Samaritan soil, folks from Galilee, Jews from Galilee, would cross over the Jordan River through the Decapolis, the ten cities, which is Gentile territory, and come south and cross over the Jordan again into Jerusalem because they didn't want to set foot on Samaritan soil. Now, I don't have the time to go through the details of the prejudice and the history between Samaria and Jerusalem, but it was there. In fact, it was seven centuries old. You go back to 8th century B.C. All that to say there was no love loss between Jews and Samaritans. So when Luke says Jesus was traveling along the border, it's really peculiar, and I I wonder if Luke might have been geographically challenged. Now, I I resemble that, and some of you know this, and I'm directionally impaired. I'm directionally challenged. My wife, Sherry, is my navigator, and she has told me many times before, if you think you should turn right, go left, and you'll get there. My last church was so abusive about my challenge that they would say to me or say to others, uh, our pastor can get you to heaven, but he can't get you to Atlanta. And I tried desperately to teach them that it's actually a sign of brilliance, but they never got it. And so maybe Luke is geographically challenged. Or maybe, and I think this is it, this remark is more theological than geographical. You know as well as I do that Jesus was known to crisscross borders that others avoided like the plague. He crossed the line between rich and poor. Jesus crossed the border between orthodox and unorthodox. He crossed the line between insiders and and outcasts, between clean and unclean. Jesus lives in the margins in between. Case in point, anybody remember the story in John 4 of the woman at the well where Jesus, who's thirsty now, meets a Samaritan woman with a past. She's got some skeletons in the closet. She's been married five times and currently living with a man that's not her husband. And Jesus at Jacob's well, which is in Sychar, modern-day Nablus today, meets her at the well. She comes at noon, not when the usual time for women to come is early in the morning or late in the evening. She comes at noon because she's been ostracized. She's been shunned by her neighbors, some would say for good reason. And yet Jesus meets her at the well and befriends this outcast and then gives her living water. If you back up a little bit, you'll notice that the scene is preceded by one verse, John 4, 4, that says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
And that's not a geographical comment. That's a missional imperative. Jesus had to go. There are some decisions that we make that we want to do, and there are some that we just have to do because it's who we are. I was reading recently about an organization, uh, maybe you've heard of them, it's called Doctors Without Borders. Have you heard of this group? Started in France 52 years ago with 13 people, which today they employ, get this, 63,000 staff members, medical personnel, who annually provide 10 million consultations in 70 different countries. And their ministry, their medical ministry, is purely based on need, not on merit. They have to go. I think, and maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong, I think you could make a case for the fact that Jesus was perhaps the first doctor, physician, without borders. And so Jesus is crossing the line between Samaria and Galilee. And then verse 12, as Jesus is going towards Jerusalem, around the city limits of a particular village, 10 men who had leprosy meet him standing at a distance. I want you to notice a couple of things about that verse. First of all, Luke calls these lepers men. He doesn't call them lepers. He said they were men who had leprosy. He does the same thing with a paralytic. Jesus never refers to him as a paralytic, but a man who's been paralyzed. Or the blind man is not the blind man in Luke. It's, it's a man who has myopia. In other words, Jesus never defines us by our infirmity. He defines us by our humanity. And that's a different thing. These 10 men suffering from leprosies, uh, leprosy, notice they're distancing themselves from Jesus. Why? Well, simply because of the religious law in Leviticus 13. These men were perceived, rightly so, I think, to be highly contagious. But I think the worst part of their disease wasn't physical. It was social. These guys were regarded by the religious folk as impure and as cursed, and consequently were forced to live outside the camp in isolation. They were, they were quarantined. And so the religious law, law says that when others come near to you, that lepers are required to cover their upper lip and cry, unclean. Consequently, they formed colonies. I think these were the original support groups, by the way. Not unlike at the Buchanan House, A-A-N-A, people who connect around a common infirmity, a common disease, a common situation that renders them somewhat impure from normal community in which they find fellowship. The interesting thing to me about this group of ten is that they're not all the same. They're not all homogeneous. They're not all Jews. In fact, there is a Samaritan among them. And I just described for you that Jews and Samaritans do not jihaw. They don't commingle. But when you're sick, all those customary distinctions are irrelevant. 
If you've ever been in a hospital on a cancer ward, you don't hear racist comments. You don't hear prejudice there. Why? Because they're all connected by a common need in which they find community. When you are terminal, those divisions don't mean anything anymore. And so this is not a homogeneous group. And at this point in the story, watch this. There is a slight breach of protocol as Jesus draws near to them. They don't cry unclean as the law requires. They cry for mercy. In fact, listen to the specifics of their plea. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Notice they call him Master. The word in Greek, kurios, it means Lord. It means supreme one. It means ruler. What's interesting is, up to this point in Luke's gospel, the only ones who ever called Jesus Master were his disciples. And these sick men are talking like apostles. And they're not asking for a handout. They don't want charity. They want mercy. The word is elios. It means compassion. I don't know if you recognize it in the time and, and day that we live in, but everybody needs some elios, some compassion. And then check out Jesus' reply. I want you to go and show yourselves to the priest, he says. And what does that mean? There are two occasions when a leper might show himself to the priest. Once is if he expects that he's been exposed. He has to be diagnosed by the priest. A second time, however, he would go to the priest if he thinks he's been healed. And these men have been through the first scenario. And so when Jesus commands, go show yourself to the priest, they think it can only mean one thing. We're going to be cleansed. We're going to be healed. And at this point, there's another critical truth, I think, that is implicitly true for ministry. Jesus treats lepers as though they're clean while they're still sick. Jesus has a way of treating impure persons as if they're pure before they're clean. In Luke 15, Jesus treats a prodigal like a son, like a daughter, even when that prodigal is in a far country. In fact, the father, watch this, runs to embrace him while he's still, what, at a distance. He's crossing the border. Go and show yourselves to the priest, and as they go, what happens? They're healed. Healing and restoration occur when we are obedient to God. And here's the crux of the story. This is why I tell the story on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Verse 15. One of the ten, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. And I love this. He threw himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan? Oh, no. Have you ever noticed how Jesus can ruin a good story? I mean, he had me at the healing part, but Jesus is always making a hero out of a goat. 
I just don't understand it. He, he does the same thing if you go back to Luke 10. You remember when he was asked the question by the religious lawyer, who is my neighbor? And he answers by telling a tale about a guy who got camel jacked on the Jericho Road and the people who should have been the heroes, the priest and the lay leader, pass by. When they see him, they pass by. But a Samaritan pulls off in the emergency lane, bandages his wounds, gives him oil, takes him to the hospital, leaves his Samaritan Express card for him. He makes a hero out of a heretic. And sometimes I just want to interrupt my rabbi and say, Jesus, read the room. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's like a good Palestinian or a good Al-Qaeda or a good Gator fan. It's an oxymoron, but not for Jesus. He's crossing the border. <laughs> Don't look now, but he's living in between. And isn't it true that sometimes the ones you would expect to return to give thanks don't come back? And the ones you wouldn't expect, they throw themselves at the feet of Jesus. When you read that line, throwing yourself at the feet of Jesus, that's the language of worship. That's liturgy. He prostrates himself in gratitude. He can't help himself. He's oozing with a sense of thanksgiving. And he can't go to the priest until he comes back to the one who is the source of his healing and says, thank you. It's the two most important words in the world. Thank you. Those are words we're already trying to teach our young grandson. Have I told you about him? <laughs> Who will be two years of age next week. And the most important words he could ever learn are thanks and sorry. Martin Luther was once asked to describe the true, true nature of worship, and this was his answer. The true nature of worship is the tenth leper who turned back. Meister Eckert once said it like this, if the only prayer you ever pray in your life is thank you, that's sufficient. But Jesus was disappointed. Were not there ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has nobody come back to praise God except this foreigner? And then, listen to this, and then Jesus looks him in the eye and says, rise up and go, your faith has made you well. Now listen, the word for well in Greek, soho, it means to be made whole. Literally, there's some translations that it means to be saved. All ten were healed, but only one made whole. I had the privilege last week on Wednesday afternoon of teaching a class at Oral Roberts University. I flew to Tulsa. My wife went to ORU for one year and then transferred to UGA, which must have been quite a culture shock for her, from Pentecostal to go dogs. Big transition. There's a classroom full. I still don't know why they asked me. These are Pentecostals. They asked a Methodist to come and teach, and I was honored to do it. A classroom full of juniors and seniors, 19, well, 20, 21, 22-year-olds, who at an early age 
have already given their lives to the idea of ministry. I walked around that campus, and I noticed everywhere I turned, there was a mission statement. It was the the college mission statement that was printed on banners all over the campus that said this, whole leaders for the whole world. And Joe, I was studying those mission statements, and I realized as I was looking at them that too often our curriculum in the church, our spiritual formation in Christian education is just for the neck up. And information is critical, but transformation, that's everything. God doesn't just want my head. He wants my heart. He wants your body. He wants your soul. Jesus doesn't want a part of you. He wants every bit of you. He wants us to be whole. And as far as I can tell, the only difference between physical healing and spiritual wholeness is gratitude. And I tell you, I've found much more gratitude even in the hospital than I have sometimes on the playground or in the office. A grateful heart. I've tried to figure this guy out, and finally it hit me that maybe the reason he knew how to be grateful after his healing was because he had discovered how to be grateful when he was still sick when he was still heartbroken. Simone Vale said it like this, love of God is pure joy when joy and suffering inspire an equal degree of gratitude. One word and I'm through. It was gratitude that prompted an old man to visit an old broken down pier on the eastern seacoast of Florida. Every Friday night until his death in 1973, you could find this guy walking slowly and slightly stooped with a big bucket of shrimp. The seagulls would follow him wherever he went, flock to him, and he'd feed them from his pail. And people wondered, why did he do it? Years before, in October 1942, this same old man, as a young man, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, was on a mission in a B-17. He was sent to deliver an important message to General Douglas MacArthur in New Guinea. But on the way, there was an unexpected detour that would hurl the captain into the most harrowing adventure of his life. Somewhere, somehow, over the South Pacific, his plane was lost beyond the reach of radio. Fuel was low, and so they just ditched the plane in the ocean. And for nearly a month, Eddie, Captain Eddie, and his companions fought the water, they fought the weather, and the scorching sun, and they spent sleepless nights recoiling as sharks circled their rafts. But of all their opposition and enemies at sea, the hardest one was starvation. They were eight days out from the crash, their rations were gone, and they knew it would take a miracle to sustain them, and a miracle occurred. One of the crew was reading scripture to the group one afternoon and finished with a prayer for deliverance. There was some small talk that then tapered off in the oppressive heat. 
While Captain Eddie's hat was pulled over his eyes to keep out the glare, he began to sleep. He dozed off. And suddenly, he writes in his book, suddenly something landed on my head. And I knew it was a seagull. I don't know how I knew. I just knew. And everyone else knew too. And nobody said a word. But peering out from under my brim without moving my head, I could see the expression on their faces. They were staring at that gull because that seagull meant food, if I could catch it. Captain Rickenbacker caught the gull, they ate the meat, and the remains were used for bait to catch fish. And the survivors were sustained. Their hopes were renewed because a lone seagull, uncharacteristically hundreds of miles from land, offered itself as a sacrifice. They were rescued on day 24, and he never forgot. So years later, every Friday night at sunset, on a lonely shore along the eastern Florida coast, you could see this old man walking, white-haired, bushy-browed, slightly stooped, a bucket full of shrimp to feed the gulls, and to remember the one that on a long day past wholly gave itself without a struggle like manna in the wilderness. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or you take them with gratitude. All ten healed. Only one made whole. Gratitude makes all the difference. I don't know about you, but that's why we come back here again and again and sit in these pews and sing these hymns Sunday after Sunday so that we can fall on our face at his feet to say thank you. And when we do, we become whole. Half hearts become whole and we remember with thanksgiving the source of our gratitude may it be so not just not just on thursday on every day in jesus name